0: I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money, What's the Outlook for Big Tech, Crypto, and ESG? Today with me is Nicholas Colas, Co-Founder of Trek Research. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. So, you know, in our chat a couple of weeks ago, we talked uh, a lot about sort of the S and P 500 and large cap tech, and and you know it's obviously had an amazing run last year. But you still see sort of upside this year. What what are you thinking here in terms of the opportunity for large cap tech? Why is it still a good place to be?
1: Yes, you're right. I do still see it as a good place to be, and um, there's a couple of reasons why. The first one, and, and most importantly, is it is as a group highly profitable. And that's something that matters during periods of economic uncertainty. You want to be invested in companies with very high profit margins. And big cap tech, and this is the tech sector within the S&P 500, has the highest margins of any group in the S&P. And it's not even close. 26% net margins, meaning for every dollar of sales, they make 26 cents of net income. That's more than double the S&P as a whole, which is 13%. And there's really nothing even close. Financial utilities they're all in the 18% range so it's hugely profitable and the second reason is that if you look at technology again the tech sector and look at revenue where do they make their money it's got the highest percentage of sales outside the U.S. of any industry in the S&P. And again, it's not even close. 59% of tech revenues come from outside the S&P. s and is 41% on average. So well more than half versus well less than half for the S&P. And you combine those two things, and it's a very compelling investment case. You have strong fundamentals from strong profitability. You have companies that are really engaged in all the growth areas of the economy, with technology, and you have a nice diversification. So you're not just relying on the U.S. economy. You've got rest of world as well. And that to me is what ties together why the group has done so well. And I don't see that changing this year, regardless of what kind of recovery we have or what other groups do well. Big tech really is a winning trade.
0: Hmm, Interesting. So I guess then, um, you know, there are there. Concerns about valuations, right? And so I guess, what is the single b- biggest risk you, you see to, to big cap tech at this point in time?
1: No, you're right. Valuation is tough. You know, big cap tech trades for 28 times earnings. The S&P is at 21. The hard thing about valuation is that it's very difficult to make a, a an investment call on valuation. So for example, beginning of last year, the S&P was much more expensive than any other global market, you know, Europe. Asia, China, and it was like 22 times earnings versus 12 to 15 times earnings for the rest of the world. And a lot of people said, oh, rest of world's going to catch up. And it didn't. S&P outperformed rest of world by double. It just killed everything else. So it's very hard to say a group or a country or even a stock is quote overvalued based on simple PE. The way I think about it is If you're going to be investing in something, you want to be investing in names that continue to grow, that have high profitability, that have high competitive advantage. And the valuation is more an indication that you're on the right track than an indictment that it's all done. So Mm. I think of it more as where do you want to be and the valuations? Look, if, if tech got to 35 or 40 times earnings, yes, I would ring the bell and say, I can't endorse this anymore. But at 28 versus 21 for the S&P, that's close enough that I feel comfortable. But every investor is going to make that call for themselves. It's a very um, personality and risk specific observation. I'm okay with it. I understand why other people are not.
0: So, you know, I think, and we talked about this too, and it kind of comes back to tech, but, you know, a lot of people, I think, have that sort of urge to kind of seek out the bargain. And so uh, back to your valuation point, you know, some people look at other markets or think of reversion to the mean, and obviously China and and emerging markets and and even Europe haven't done as well. And so, you know, there's this sort of inclination to want to put some money to into those to those losers, you know, so what why can you just kind of walk me through why, you know, why do we not really want to be allocating money right now abroad? Is it is it more than just Um, the tech story? Is there an economic fundamental story? Anything else that we should be thinking about?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. Let's talk about China first, then talk about Europe second. So I have a standing policy that I learned actually while working at a big hedge fund in the late 90s. It's very simple. You don't buy new lows and you don't short or sell new highs ever, period. It's my cardinal rule for trading and investing. You wait. If you're interested in a new low or an underperforming name or group, you wait for it to stop making new lows and hang out for, say, 30 days. China, and this is MCHI, the MSCI Mm -hmm. China Index, is still way too close to new lows, 52 week lows for my comfort level. It tells me that there's not still a lot of confidence that the regulatory um, climate there versus their big tech is going to ease up anytime soon. So on China, I don't care how cheap it is, I want to see it stop making new lows for 30 or 60 days before i even start thinking about that Mm -hmm. i don't care if it goes to five times earnings that's the way i just look at the world For Europe, it's a different story. I think Europe's probably okay. We do like um, the UK, for example. Uh, EWU is the symbol. And in terms of other sectors in the US, we do like energy. We do like financials. We do think there's a good trade in cyclicals. And by the way, those are the two cheapest groups in the S&P at 11 and 15 times earnings. We do see upside, particularly in energy. So I'm not averse to buying things for a trade and thinking about cyclical exposure. And there's a lot of cyclical earnings leverage in energy especially. But I always do want to be careful and understand that there's not the a difference between a trade for a very particular reason and an investment for a particular reason, and you always want to identify the catalysts that are going to make the market come to your point of view before you just raise your hand and say it's a reversion to the mean for evaluation to a valuation story.
0: That's a good point. And I think when we talked, you mentioned a trade is sort of like twelve a 12-month horizon, right? In Correct. The, in horizon. Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned energy, obviously, and, you know, that brings me to inflation. Um, we are seeing inflation really for the first time for many investors since it's been, you know, three decades plus since that, that type of pressure popped up. You know, what tools do you think investors and analysts need to have in their back pocket to maneuver this backdrop and find the right investments?
1: So yeah, you're right. Inflation is relatively novel. I, you know, I think I bought my first stock in 1976 or 77. Um, so I, grew up in that environment of high inflation and have done a lot of work on kind of how we got there. The important thing to remember right now is inflation isn't a deadweight loss for equities, for corporate fundamentals. It's actually at the margin, a positive for a big company. I don't know how many people listening work for a big company versus a small one, but big companies have much stronger tools, whether that be internal controls or competitive advantage to deal with inflation and pass price increases along, that's going to help their earnings power this year. So I think in equities generally, U.S. large caps are a reasonable hedge against inflation because you're going to see earnings go up even as inflation continues to roll through the system. That's exactly what happened in the 70s, by the way. Earnings, inflation basically doubled the cost of everything and earnings doubled over the period of the 70s. So earnings kept up with inflation. I expect to see the same thing happen now. So you'll see strong profit margins, strong free cash flow. You'll see companies buy back stock it's overall a positive. So that's my big takeaway for inflation is don't think inflation is harmful to large companies. It's generally helpful. Everything else I'm more concerned about small caps. I'm concerned about international, which tends to have smaller companies I'm concerned about. For, but for U.S. large caps, I think it's okay.
0: Hmm, interesting. That's that's good to know. Um, so I want to remind the audience to submit their questions in the Q&A function. And, and, you know, we've already gotten quite a few. So I'm going to try to get to some of them. And um, we have a question from Rashmi Kant, who says, um, given Apple hitting three trillion dollars in market cap recently and Tesla getting its um, deliveries of cars, you know, is this supply chain situation sort of hype? Are we really seeing bottle, you know, a bottleneck in the supply chain um, system here?
1: Yes. Uh, Actually, the the New York Fed, uh, I would encourage everybody to take a look if they're interested in this topic. The New York Fed on its economics blog just put out a piece this morning um, where they went through and created an index for supply chain disruption. And by their measure, it's still at extremely high levels even right now. It's maybe coming off the boil a little bit. But just to give you a sense, they went back to the 1990s and normalized an analysis of freight costs, air freight, sea freight. Um, PMI dislocations, and they came up with an index, and we are five standard deviations away from the pre-pandemic mean in terms of supply chain disruptions. Five standard deviations is like a a once-in-a-thousand-year event kind of observation. So by that measure, which I think is pretty robust, we are still very much locked into supply chain. But the questioner has a great point in that, which is Big companies are always at the top of the stack when it comes to suppliers. I used to cover the auto industry, and you know GM back in the day could get stuff nobody else could get because it was the biggest buyer of plastics and steel. So big companies are not going to be as hit by supply chain as smaller ones. If you're a small company, yeah, getting stuff is going to be very hard for the next year. If you're a big company, you're at the, the, uh, the beginning of the line, and that's yep. very helpful.
0: Yeah, that is, that's a very good point. Goes along with the reason you want to be in large caps. Um, So you mentioned a sort of supply chain, I think chips, whenever I think supply chain, Um, given that semiconductor chips are now used in much larger part of the economy. um, uh, We've got a question from Frank about whether that makes the chip sector less cyclical going forward.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, unfortunately i think the answer is no i certainly think it gives chip companies pricing power over a cycle because demand is so robust but the chip sector is i always think of it like the airline sector it's a very high fixed cost a high fixed capacity industry where it's very hard to predict supply and demand as we've literally have just seen over the past 18 months and so it's always hard to level load a factory to optimize production and optimize profitability you know as i said i covered the auto industry so I got to see firsthand that the way a complex manufacturing system works most efficiently and at the highest profit is with the most predictable amount of demand. It allows you to plan longer lead times, run more efficiently, have less machine downtime, and that's always going to be difficult for the chip sector. So I think it's a great sector. It's obviously you know, the lifeblood of the global economy, um, but I don't see it being necessarily less cyclical. I see it being overall more productive and more profitable, but it's always going to face those challenges I discussed about level loading a factory in any given month to optimize profits. Mm,
0: that's a good point. Um, so before I pivot away from tech, um, there is one question here from Tom who asks how you see interest rates affecting the stock prices of tech companies, um, some of which carry large debt that loads
1: yes so it's another another uh, excellent um point Uh, i did a lot i've done a lot of work on this over the past year just looking at history to see if tech gets hurt when rates rise and historically, at least, the the correlation is just not there. You know, tech can do well during periods of rising rates, even though you would think it would hurt valuations because their earnings power is so good, because their marginal earnings power is so good. So every dollar of earning, every dollar of revenue to tech... While the base might get to 26% profits, the marginal dollar might be 40 or 50%. So they have tremendous earnings leverage. So I don't worry too much about higher interest rates affecting technology fundamentals. I could certainly see if the 10-year went to 2% this month, yeah, tech's going to get hurt. But does it mean it's going to be down for the year? Not necessarily, because those fundamentals are still so good.
0: Hmm, a good point. Um, so, uh, as you may imagine, we have a lot of interest in crypto from our readers. Um, and you obviously first started writing about crypto in 2013, so you've been covering this for a long time. Can you maybe, can we maybe just start with, you know, why this isn't a fad? I think one re- um, one listener wrote in that he thinks it's it's akin to a chain letter, you know, and, and a scam. So let's let's talk about sort of why you think this is not a fad or a scam.
1: Sure. Um... Look, the reason I started writing about crypto in 2013 when everybody thought it was kind of at best an oddball uh, and at worst a scam was because I thought Bitcoin had a very unique technology. The distributed nature of the blockchain was something really new and novel and it clearly could have utility. And I still believe that today. You know, the way I try to summarize why I think this is we're just talking about Bitcoin for a second and, and that blockchain technology No one has hacked the Bitcoin blockchain. They have hacked wallets. They have hacked people's accounts. They have hacked everything but that core infrastructure. And it's now worth the better part of a trillion dollars. So there's a huge amount of incentive to break that system if you could. And it's never really broken. There's been some hiccups along the way, but the thing is still here. I think we're on the 13th anniversary of, of the blockchain running uh, this week or this month, and it's never been broken. So I think that there is some core utility to it. And I thought that in 2013, I still think that today. Um, so that at its core is where I see the utility. It's a novel technology as far as the ecosystem that's going up around it, whether it be Ethereum or Ethereum, um, backed vehicles or stable coins, there's obviously a lot of wild west in the in the crypto world. There's, I think, 12,000 plus coins and tokens. There's, you know, 2 trillion plus of value in there. A lot of it's illusory, but the way I think about all of these things, including Bitcoin, is that it's, they're not assets, they are options. They're okay. like trading an option. They are an option on a very specific future. And the way I know that's true is because I've gone back and run the volatility of Bitcoin back since inception. Bitcoin is just as volatile today, this year, last year, as it was when it was one-tenth the size, which is something you never see in capital markets. Always, as you get bigger, you get less volatile. More critical mass means less volatility. It's mm-hmm. not the case with Bitcoin. By the way, it's also not the case with Tesla, which tells me that it's also an option on a very specific future. So... Anybody thinking of crypto should think about it in terms of I'm buying an option, a long dated option on a very specific future vision of the the way technology is going to inform people's lives. And if you believe in that, then that's an option for it. And if you don't, you can't own them.
0: Interesting. OK, so I'm going to try to hit some of these from our readers. Um, so Leary says, what is the probability Um. That, well, What's the probability you put on a major fail in the crypto universe, you know, a c- security breach or a liquidity crunch at a DeFi exchange or broker where someone can't redeem accounts for cash?
1: Oh, I'd say over the next 12 months it's very high. It'll happen somewhere. I don't I honestly I, I don't know where, but there's not enough regulation right now. And when we know what happens when a lot of money chases a, a bunch of random ideas, you're gonna have some implosions, you're gonna have some disappointments. So I think it's all but certain that it's gonna happen, which is why it's so important for anybody who's playing the space to really do the work and understand what the asset is. And even then, like for years I called Bitcoin a lunch money trade mm-hmm. which is you never put more money into this thing than you've ever spent on lunch in your life. So mm-hmm. if if you took out like five buddies and had a three hundred dollar, five hundred dollar lunch one day, like on vacation, that's your that's your what's your capital limit on this trade.
0: That's definitely not how some people are approaching it, right? No, I mean, and,
1: I... and look a lot of people have made a ton of money on it. So yeah. you know kudos for them. There's a great book which people might want to look at called The Future of Money by Eswar Prasad, uh, which covers this topic in great detail. And he has this great observation somewhere in the middle of the book, which says, I basically, I spent three years writing this book. I talked to a ton of people and maybe I should have just bought Bitcoin instead of doing this book.
0: Yeah, yeah, as far as wonderful. Um, and OK, so so I guess then there's, you know, there are questions and this kind of, you know, you just sort of said, don't put too much money in it. But people are wondering how to how to get access to Bitcoin. You know, do they do the grayscale ETF? David's asking, um, can you discuss the liquidity in some of these Bitcoin products? And, um, and and, you know, are there benefits diversifying into other Bitcoins?
1: Yeah, so i say, personally, the way I've done it historically is with Coinbase. I was an early Coinbase adopter, still have an account. Um, and that's been, for the most part, a reasonable way to go about it. It does go down sometimes, but it's gotten a lot better in the last 12 months, especially since it went public. So that's my personal way of going about it. For institutional investors, you know, the the, the ETF-like products, like, like the Grayscales, are good because you have the custody, you have the transparency, you have some regulatory structure around it. So those are the options options to play. Um, The way I personally think about it is there's kind of two vectors or three vectors in in crypto. The first is Bitcoin kind of as a standalone asset. I think of that as digital gold. That is a scarce asset, not much more being mined. I think 90% of it's already out there and demand for it will drive the price higher or lower, just like gold has done for the last 5,000 years. Then you've got Ethereum and utility um, projects that are trying to create a different world, a decentralized world. I look at those, I look at Ethereum as a nice way to basically play that. It held up better last year than Bitcoin did during the the implosion in the back half of the year, which I think speaks to that incremental utility having some support for the price. Um, But just as important, and I think this is an important observation about crypto is people think about crypto too much as what, what thing do I buy? yeah and that's fine. Um, we all want to make money, and that's that's a good way to look at it. but we also need to zoom back for a second and realize that the ecosystem that crypto is trying to build is meant to replace the financial system, the right. current financial system and that's one reason why like bank stocks have such low multiples and why Every financial services company needs to be thinking long and hard about what does the world look like in a decentralized environment. And if you look at like what Andreessen Horowitz does, which is a big VC firm that's all over crypto and distributed finance, they see the vision, their vision of the future as basically using these assets to tear apart the entire ecosystem of how financial services operates. Mm -hmm. And they want to get there as soon as possible. So it's just as important to understand this space, even if you never buy one, because it affects like. 11% 11% of the S&P.
0: But does that mean that financials are a value trap?
1: Many are. Yes, many are. Um, the ones that can navigate to the future, I think, have a future. But you know, as we were talking about earlier, there are things that are trades, energy, financials, and there are things that you own forever, mm-hmm. like technological disruption and innovation. Those are the things that really you know, give you a better retirement or give you a better long-term return.
0: Okay, so I'm going to pivot you from crypto to ESG, which is obviously another big trend, and there are a lot of skeptics there as well. Um, What is your view on sort of this entire ESG movement and whether it's actually sustainable?
1: Sure. So, I mean, the ESG movement is clearly sustainable, and it's because it's global. It's just as much, if not more, a European asset allocation um, priority as it is in the U.S., It is very important for asset managers because a lot of them, you know, if you think about a typical asset manager in the US right now, they have a base of customers that's anywhere from 50 to 80 years old. At some point, those customers are going to hand off a lot of their assets to their children or to their survivors. And those people are significantly younger. And those people, do find ESG important. They do want their money to go to something that's doing good as well as making money with the asset they own. So ESG is going to be a growing topic. I have no doubt about that. The way ESG is expressed in capital markets is going to be quantitative though. And that's mm-hmm. something, something people miss. Everything is done through indexing now. Active management is you know, not growing as much as indexing is. And so in order to index ESG you need data. And so ESG is going to be expressed as a bunch of numbers just like a financial report. And that's the path the companies are taking. It's not just a matter of doing good and having, you know, a, a Twitter feed full of stuff you're doing for the community. You actually have to be able to translate that into numbers. And that's mm-hmm. what the money management industry is really struggling with now is how to create those indices and what data do you want from a company to create the index.
0: Yeah, and and whether it's actually efficient or efficient effective data, right, to sort of change the profitability of a company or returns or or whatnot. Um, it does seem like we're sort of in the early phases of a new type of accounting to some some sense.
1: Don't, that's, exact, that's exactly the way to think about it. And this is the way Larry Fink, who is uh, BlackRock, he is really, I think, the leader in this. He understands it has to be quantitative, which is why he's pushing for companies to adopt accounting rules that sit parallel to GAAP and FASB and reflect what a company is doing to improve its ESG profile.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so it won't be sort of exclusionary. You're not owning you know, China or fossil fuels or something. You're sort of, it's it's, a, it's on a spectrum, on a scale to some extent.
1: Yeah. And to some degree, life happens at the margins, right? Yeah. So if a company is improving its ESG profile dramatically over a period of, say, three to five years, it'll get more allocation in a good ESG algorithm.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so Laura asks, will 2022 be the year that corporate America takes action at implementing their net zero plans? And as that as part of that goes solar, does that create opportunities in those types of companies?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, I think this is an ongoing process. I think companies are to some degree leading the charge because they see it as important to their customers. And so they're taking the lead. But again, the point is what are the concrete steps that we can measure over time? And that's gonna be much harder. So I think 2022 is gonna be a building year, not a breakthrough year. And the other tension, and this is significant, and I'm, I'm surprised people don't talk about it more, but we still have an economy, that, a global economy that's in full recovery from the, the COVID uh, and pandemic recession. It will continue to grow this year. And as a result, we're going to have more oil demand. I just mm-hmm. read this morning, and I've been thinking this for months, that we're going to see record oil demand in the world in 2022 and again in 2023 and that's just because there's not enough infrastructure still to and alternatives to take up the slack so what do we do about that Um, if we start underinvesting in oil where do oil prices go does that cause a recession does that cause stress in emerging markets which don't have in all cases have natural um, local reserves of oil or natural gas how does that affect global uh, poverty Mm-hmm. So there's a raft of factors here that you know. Like I said, I like energy because I see these factors kind of in the near term really playing into energy's hands. Traditional yeah. carbon-based energy.
0: From higher energy prices also though bolsters demand for renewables, right? So it's it's very really, it's kind of an interesting sort of um, I guess ecosystem where we're sort of trying to move the world away from fossil fuels, but actually the move away the transition requires more fossil fuels to some
1: extent. Yes, and, and you know, in, in the right world, you have a, a, a plan, right? You you have a plan where you can figure out how to do something in the short term to benefit people and then do something over the medium and long term, say three years out to really benefit the overall environment.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I do want to take you to the economy and the recovery in and, and Omicron. I mean, um, I, I know you are a huge purveyor of data and Google Trends and, and all that. When you're keeping tabs on sort of these indicators that you look at, well, you know what are you seeing in terms of um the virus and its potential impact on the economy global economy because i think china has a very different approach to um COVID with a very zero tolerance approach and then they're shutting things down whereas we obviously have taken a much more flexible approach this time around
1: Yes. So a couple of points on that. The first is one, one of the tools I use that you, you you alluded to is Google Trends, which I encourage everybody listening to at least, you know, get on and play with Just Google the word trends. It's called Google Trends. And it is basically a tool that allows you to see how many people, how many searches there were for a given term. And that gives you a sense of how much social relevance a given topic has at any given time. And you can go back to 2004 and look at what it's had over multiple cycles. Turn is a useful tool. If you go to that tool today and you type in the word COVID and you look at U.S. searches, the number of U.S. searches for COVID just hit an all-time high this week. Higher than the initial wave, higher than the subsequent wave, higher than the day that the vaccines were announced, higher than the Delta surge. It's on an index of 100. It's a good 20% higher than any previous time. So clearly this topic is front and center in American consumers' minds right now. And that tells me that they're concerned which means that you might have some slowing of the economy in the first quarter if this persists because you're going to have less people returning to work less people commuting less economic activity around the process of going to work and being at work less travel less business travel leisure travel etc so this is something we have to watch it hasn't historically had a huge effect but like when covid was really a hot search term it was in the third quarter Third quarter GDP growth was just 2%. Fourth quarter is looking to be more like 7%. So we got to watch this very carefully. So I do think about that a lot in terms of what's the cadence of the recovery. We could have a slow Q1 2022. Your point about the global um, issue is equally relevant because global searches for COVID, and that's a common word across all languages, just hit a new high as well. Mm -hmm. So it is an issue around the world. And I think that's one reason why you're seeing 10-year yields start to spike as we start the new year. The 10-year was running below 150 until the end of last year. In just two days, we're up to 168, which may not seem like a big move, but that tells you that markets are worried about inflation due to the supply chain and due to the issue of of Omicron and what it does to the supply chain in Q1 and Q2, Mm how that drives inflation. And the odds of a Fed rate increase have gone from less than 50-50 in the last week to over 60% today.
0: Yeah. Um, so we've talked about the labor force before and labor force participation rates and, and things like that. I mean, you know, we, we had new numbers out, the great resignation <laughs> continues, the quit rates really high in, you know, anyone who still needs to kind of go to go to work, but including healthcare workers. I mean, what what are you thinking about when you think about labor force participation and why should stock investors care?
1: Yeah, so labor force participation is a really important long-term economic measure that doesn't get enough attention. And the highlight on this is all-time high labor force participation in this country, going back for 100 years, was in 1999. That was the peak. It was like 68%. This is male and female together. And it's gone down ever since It began to go up at the end of the last recovery. That was maybe one of the most promising things about the recovery pre-pandemic of the last two or three years before 2020. And that was LFP began to rise again. And that's important because it means more people are working, making money, have more money to spend. The economy can grow faster and more sustainably. And that all went away with the pandemic. And we're having a lot of trouble getting it back for all the reasons you mentioned. People just simply don't wanna work in a relatively low paying customer or public facing job for fear of infection, for fear of bringing it home to their parents or to their kids. And that's not going to get better until this pandemic gets more normal, gets more, less dangerous. And we're not there yet. So that's why LFP is so important. If you can get an LFP back to where you were in 1999, which is like six points away, you'd have a much stronger economy.
0: Interesting. So when you look out in the horizon over the next 12 months, I mean, what are the things that you're most concerned about? Where where are the risks and and potential um, spoilers to your thesis, especially large cap tech?
1: Yeah. look. The the biggest one is interest rates. I think the interest rates and how the Fed navigates what's going to happen in the next 12 months with inflation. The bond market has given the Fed a ton of slack about inflation because you think about a 10-year at 1.7% and inflation running at 6%, the bond market's saying this inflation is transitory and the Fed can deal with it. And that's fine. They probably can. But the chances of a Fed policy mistake are not zero, and they're not 10%. They're somewhere between, I think, 20 and 40% um, because it's going to be a challenge. They have to thread this needle very carefully to raise interest rates just enough to signal that they're taking inflation seriously without cutting off the recovery. And this Fed under Powell has had some history of being overly dogmatic on the issue of interest rates, like in 2018. And everybody remembers the fourth quarter of 2018 where the market imploded because the Fed was being too aggressive on rates and Powell changed his mind in early 2019, and we got a big rally. So there's not a great track record here of kind of flawless execution. That's my biggest concern. You know, generally speaking, like after you have a good year, like last year, you don't get a bad year. you get an okay year because the market discounts the future. The market's pricing and now it's going to happen in the middle of the year. So I'm not overly concerned, but there is, you know, there are examples limited, but of examples when you had a great year and the following year was really bad. And there's only two really. One was 37 because the Fed raised reserve requirements and one was 73 because of the oil shock. So it can happen, and that's what I do worry about. I worry about a Fed that gets too tight too fast.
0: And would be the, the first fallout would be in the tech world, or where where would we feel that hit first?
1: You would feel it very quickly. In you, you see the ten year. Strangely enough, you'd see the ten-year go back down to one point three or one point two percent because it would be implying a recession coming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That would probably bring stocks down. I don't think. I think that you'd see exactly what happened in twenty twenty, where the market would gravitate to tech because it's the safest place to be. Mm-hmm. Because whether or not we have a recession, Apple's still going to sell a lot of iPhones. You know, Exxon Mobil won't sell as much oil. City won't make as many loans, um, but tech will still be pretty solid. So I I think I don't, would never call tech a safe haven in a market crisis, but I think it is safe enough.
0: Mm, Okay. So I want to get maybe one or two more questions in before letting you go. Um, So there are are some questions from Joseph and Lori about NFTs. Um, You know, does the metaverse inflate the crypto NFT bubble further? Can you um, talk about crypto in terms of NFTs and art? You know, do you see the art market in NFTs developing this year? I don't know if you have thoughts on NFTs.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I actually... One of my side, way back in the day, I was an archaeology major. And so I've had an art history. And so I've had a long, long time sort of affinity for the art space and understanding how art is priced. And I read the art newsletter or a newspaper. And it's a a fascinating market that's in some ways just like stocks and in some ways totally unique. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think about with NFTs is it's part of the art world. It's part of the collectible world. Collectibles tend to do really well with inflation. Remember, I used to work for Bob Solomon of Solomon Brothers, who was the head of research. And he was the first to kind of put Ming vases Mm -hmm. uh, and other collectible art into an index of, of investable assets. And so I see the NFT world as kind of part of that world. The metaverse is really interesting. I think it feeds a lot of long-term trends that are undeniable, like the desire for people to have immersive experiences. I think we're way early. I think the metaverse will go through a winter like every other tech development does. So I wouldn't necessarily run out and buy 15 NFTs and expect to make a million bucks this year. But I appreciate why the world is trending towards that. And I I see it as an extension of the art world versus an extension of, say, the crypto world.
0: Interesting. Um, okay, so Steve has one question, and I'll leave it at this one as the end. Um, I, he's he's worried about a ten percent correction in the first half of twenty twenty two as we sort of see this Fed um, dance, I guess, playing out, um, and then recovering to shoot higher in the second half. Can you give us just your your thoughts on how you see the market playing out in the next twelve months?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a. Very fair observation. And it's, it's not my base case, but I understand how people get there. The, the reason I'm not so worried, and this is a near-term market call. So the reason I'm not so worried about the next, say, 90 days is because analyst earnings estimates for the S&P are just ridiculously low. So to give you just two numbers to hang this discussion on. In the third quarter of last year, the S&P earned $54 a share. So if you take all the company's S&P and put it into the index price, they earned $54 a share. That was an all-time record never had higher earnings. And yet the analysts on the street are looking for $51 a share for Q4. So from 54 to 51, even though we're getting 7% GDP growth, analysts have been way too conservative on earnings all this year. And rightly so, it's been a very hard market to call, but I've done earnings models for decades. And I also understand it's very hard to model marginal earnings contribution from revenues. So I understand their challenge, but they've played it too conservative. And so I think you're going to see a lot of earnings beats in Q4. And I think that's why you have a pretty good same January, February, early March, because earnings power is going to be very good. Past that you do get into the first fed meeting with a rate increase, potentially in March, and I can see some pullback from there. So I'm not so worried about a 10% pullback from here, but I think the points well taken. We do have to think about, and as we discussed, a Fed policy mistake where the market thinking the Fed is making a policy mistake, mm. and it's a very fine line to draw. And we are at very high valuations, so I'm not complacent on that risk. Totally get it.
0: So you, you know, you mentioned this in our chat about financial modeling and sort of, you know, you learn from people who experience inflation firsthand. I mean, do you think that that could be a reason that? the analyst estimates are too low, that there's not enough financial modeling being done.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it, it is something that I, I think is absolutely a phenomenon. Like I started analyzing companies in 1990 and 91, and I learned from people who were like the rock star analysts in the 1970s. And so they understood and they trained me to really tear apart an income statement and start with revenue line. How much pricing does company have? How many units are they selling? What's their product mix? and i spent hours creating these models by hand because there was no internet when i started in 1991 Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. couldn't download these numbers so it gave me a, a discipline that i still use to this day and it tells me that numbers are too low for a good reason, and earnings leverages that reason because it's so hard to calculate coming off a bottom. And that's the change, challenge analysts face. I don't think that they're, quote, incompetent. I just think that they've never seen this before.
0: Yeah, no, and I think there are a lot of people on the street that are in that same boat. So um, this is great, Nick, always insightful. Thank you so much for taking me in time, I appreciate it. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we hope our uh, you will listen to our next episode tomorrow, Market Watch, How Will Rising Interest Rates Affect the Housing Market? Um, interest rates are expected to rise through 2022. Michael Franseroni, Frant- Chief economist at the Mortgage Bankers Association, will explain the implications for the housing and mortgage markets. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Nick. Be well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.